Hi there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I am jumping into part two of my conversation with TJ Desh Obi. He is currently a visiting professor at Universidad ICESI, Centros de Estudios Afrodiasporos in Cali, Colombia. He received his doctorate from UCLA in the United States and is the author of Fighting for Honor, the history of African martial art traditions in the Atlantic world. He specializes in historical ethnography of pre-colonial Africa and the African diaspora with a focus on martial arts, physical culture, religion, sport, historical linguistics, and military history. His current research focuses on the social history of the machete and the Afro-Colombian machete fighting form from 1848 to 1960 and 20th century prison boxing. Dr. Desh Obi is a permanent member of the history department at the City University of New York, Baruch College. So let's jump right back into the conversation with TJ, who is currently in Ecuador on research for his latest works. So let's talk about your book, because I find that, I mean, the idea of the history of African martial art traditions in the Atlantic world, so it's kind of what you're still working on, but fighting for honor. So I wanted to kind of understand more about like the war games of where this is, and then just melding that with like the, as you mentioned, having to be initiated to be able to be a part of the fighting of it. So tell us more about the inspiration around the book, how you accomplished putting the work together and where it sits now with you. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So I first came to it because I started, I had been involved in, as I mentioned, Wrestling, African style wrestling, and was my specialty. There's in this movement called in Western wrestling, they call it the ankle pick. In my village in Nigeria, it's called Ibenebe, is the name for the the art. And it basically, is, it's a less martial art or a sport in which all they do is this variations of this one technique. So that was my bread and butter technique when I was even when I was doing you know Western wrestling in high school and things like that and uh-huh. in college. And so I had that experience. And then I started in high school, I started playing capoeira. Mm. And in capoeira, people mentioned that, oh, you know, there's all this talk about Africa and Angola. And said, yeah, this comes from that. But people talked about Africa, but they, you know, it was like vague, like where in Africa. So I said, let's find out. <laughs> so um, right. yeah, where? two things happened. First, I had gotten a grant after college to go to Angola. And I was able to find this martial art, it's called Ngolo, that was the mother of Capoeira. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of set me on the path to say, wow, you know, it's clear that this is the mother of Capoeira in Brazil. In order to kind of make that case, I had to get into the history of it. Because there were people in Brazil, now mind you, again, this is the thing, in this I've had to overcome a lot of hurdles I can imagine. In, in this career, both on the academic side and in the side of practitioners. So on the academic mm-hmm. side, I remember when I was in college and I said, yeah, I'm going to write my thesis about martial arts. And, and my professor was like, that's not really a topic for serious academic study, whatever. So that's why I switched advisors and found someone who my two advisors who were open to this, because at that time mm-hmm. period, 
There just no one was working even on Asian martial arts as a serious academic point of study. And mm-hmm. that's not true. There were some. Philip Zarilli was writing about Indian wrestling and things like that. Um, so there were some mm-hmm. anthropologists. But uh, for mm-hmm. historians, there wasn't. So I had to overcome a lot of resistance on the academic side of people recognizing this as a legitimate topic of study. And then in terms of the Brazilian community in Capoeira, they Capoeira has become such a nationalized symbol that there's a lot of resistance about acknowledging any African connections. And there was a, a major scholar who said that, well, yeah, if we do Africa, we haven't found out anything like Capoeira in Africa. And if it was found, it came from Brazil. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, okay. Okay. So that's kind of what I was up against. I had to deal with both of those things. So first part is that we have no one has found anything like capoeira in Africa. And I was like, well, you really haven't looked, have you? So I went out and I spent time in Angola, literally going village by village, talking to elders, etc., until I found a few places where it was still practiced. There was one master left living. One master left living. Luckily, he was, even though he was older, he was super sharp. He was still amazing fighter. And he told me about his master, his master's master. You know, so I was able to really, I just consider myself blessed to have found the last living master. And so kind of sitting at his feet and talking to the other people in these communities where it was still practiced, collecting language samples and things like this, I was able to really understand locally and historically, how did the people in this area understand this martial art? Because I was looking at the history of the terms that they used to describe the art. So in Asian martial arts, you don't say, let's go play karate. We're not play kung fu, right? right? That's, it's, a, it's, right. it's a different concept to what mm-hmm, you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. whereas in Angola, it's either let's kick Angolo or let's play Angolo. And just like we say, we play capoeira. And so anyway, so I was able to kind of write, document the history of how this art was practiced, how locals understood the practice. And then I was able to find some documentation of it in the written archives of, Hmm. you know, the martial tradition of these people. And the amazing thing was that this was where I found it was a place in Africa in which Europeans were not allowed until late in the 19th century. Hmm. So not only did they not allow Europeans in, they didn't even want the translation of the Portuguese was something like blacks with shoes, right? So if you were, you could be African, but if you're dressed like one of those Europeans, you're not welcome here, right? So they had this place had a very close thing. They didn't want Europeans because with Europeans came the slave trade, et cetera. And this was a cattle farming region. And so they kind of dominated, they kind of dominated their own caravan routes to the coast and focused on cattle and ivory and other things. And they tried to protect their heartland from encroachment of enslavers. So in the end, I was able to kind of talk about, find the history of this art and then also prove that it didn't come from Brazil because no one who was dressed like a Brazilian was getting near this place before the late 19th century. And then trying to come up with the, understand the history and practice of wrestling in West Africa was another big challenge. And that's basically how the book started to come together. In Africa, I did research in Cape Verde, uh, where I have family as well, Senegal, briefly in Cameroon, Angola, Namibia, Botswana, 
Congo, both sides of Congo. It was Zaire when I was there, just to let you know how long ago that mm. was. Both Democratic Republic of Congo and Zaire. And then I was as far over as Zambia, Mozambique. So I, I traveled a lot trying to cover all my bases to make sure I wasn't missing somewhere. And in the end, I was able to kind of make a map of martial traditions in West and West Central Africa because it was very regional. So there are some regions where wrestling is the dominant practice, other places where stick fighting is the dominant practice, other areas where pugilism, whether it's foot fighting or boxing, were the dominant area. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a dominant, you know, were dominant in the area. So that's kind of how that came together. And then I started to look in the diaspora for where mm-hmm. these different martial arts went. And obviously Brazil was a no-brainer because I had already been yeah. in Brazil and done work on the history of capoeira in Brazil as an undergrad looking at its spiritual traditions. But then also in the Caribbean, I ended up focusing on the Francophone Caribbean, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Haiti, etc., and a lot of the Lesser Antilles, where even though people speak English now, people's parents and grandparents' generation, they spoke French Patois. So all of that Lesser Antilles. And then the United States, where before my book, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in America who knew that there were African American martial arts you know, right. from the time of slavery. Right. Unheard of. You know, I had advisors look at me like, what are you talking about? I never heard of that. Well, did you ever ask? And that's right. the thing. If you don't ask the question, you don't get the answer. Sure. And so I was the first person to go into these areas and ask the questions and mm-hmm. get the answer. And so mm-hmm. this African American martial art called knocking and kicking, very fascinating called Knocking and Kicking. Knocking and Kicking. Yeah, that's the name of it. Yeah. So, and it is a, I want to call it a hybrid art. So we have the kicking side, like you have in Capoeira, mm-hmm. with these same kind of kicks that we see from the Angolo. Now, the kicks from the Angolo are very distinct, and you don't see them in many martial arts in the world, because one of the characteristic elements are these kicks where you put your hands on the ground to kick. And you mm. either kick from cartwheels, you mm-hmm. kick from handstands, you put your, I mean, if you've seen, I'm sure, capoeira. So you've mm-hmm. seen these kind of, you don't, no one looks at capoeira and says, oh yeah, well, that definitely looks like karate or something. You know, it, they're so mm-hmm. different. And so we have in the kicking side, we have the same techniques that we have in capoeira. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that in the kicking side of knocking and kicking, the kicks are, how do I say this? The orientation is more for self-defense than mm. performance mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so so like my master would practice kicking trees it's not so you know in capoeira the common the educational thing is you're kicking in the air even mm-hmm. in games you don't usually make contact with the other person yeah whereas yeah. in in knocking and kicking there was a, a strong emphasis on you're trying to make contact now that's not to say that there wasn't a ritualistic or performative side there was, but that mm-hmm. was done to music. So there were two contexts for knocking and kicking. So there was one, which was the primary context, which is that people of African descent from these closed communities would get together and they kind of, they had this subculture within the, you may have heard of the Gullah people from South mm-hmm. Carolina, the coastal Carolinas and Northern Florida. But within the Gullah community, there was a sub community that kept, you know, basically they consider themselves keeping to the old ways, if you will. And in this subgroup, they continued to practice the martial art in its fullest context 
as a martial art, but these were in closed meetings, right? So kind of like with the Grima things, behind closed doors, no one could see. But then openly, there was a religious practice that was called the ring shout. And the mm-hmm. ring shout was a religious practice in which people would dance counterclockwise until someone would catch the spirit, and then they would often go into the center and kind of... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the in some areas in the Carolinas, drums were continued. So people kind of talk that, you know, oh, drums were illegal, you know, under slavery in America. And it's like, yeah, you know, these are sweeping generalizations. But if you look at the documentary evidence from this region, at least, uh, there were still drums. But the primary thing that was came to be done, the percussion was done with a stick. And they would just beat polyrhythms of the stick on the floor to create the equivalent of drum beat and people would, the community would dance in a circle. And this became the mark, the key marker of Christianity among blacks in the low country, in the Carolina region. Hmm. And so for these early African-Americans in the time, during the time of slavery, you weren't considered fully Christian until you had caught the spirit in the ring shout. Oh, and so this was wow. the practice. So if you've ever heard of the religious denomination, African Methodist Episcopal. Mm-hmm. AME. Mm-hmm. So these kind and related uh, branches of Christianity for these practices, you know, for these denominations that come out of this area, the most important understanding was after this religious service, so you'd have church service in the church, just kind of more common church service. But then afterwards, out back, they would have the ring shout. And... Mm. You weren't fully considered initiated until you had caught the spirit in the ring shout afterwards. Anyway, this is a long wind up to where practitioners of this martial art, when they caught the spirit, would do these solo performances in the middle of the ring shout, which uninitiated people didn't recognize was a martial art because they didn't know the martial art because they weren't part of this uh, kind of closed, smaller, closed community. But they would openly demonstrate it to this polyrhythmic music during this religious ceremony called the ring shout. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so there was this, there was kind of both the more martial and then the more performative side of this martial art. And these martial arts and the honor part of it, I think is really important because I think that, again, we kind of have blanket, kind of gone with the wind conceptualization of slavery in America Mm -hmm. and how slavery functioned. But in reality, when you get down to the primary sources and what was actually going on, it was really, uh, there was a lot more room for negotiation and and enslaved people who knew this martial art could leverage it against their masters or against the overseers and get special privileges for themselves. Mm. Um, So Mm -hmm. they could, I mean, there's a lot of ways that it functioned to help and what, what I'm saying about knocking and kicking was also true about capoeira, was also true about the martial arts in the Caribbean, is that there were a lot of people who knew this martial art and they couldn't be whipped because they literally, the master couldn't physically dominate them to whip them because they knew this martial art. Right, right. In turn, some masters used these martial artists who were technically their bondsmen to serve as gladiators mm-hmm. and give them a chance to gain their freedom through through these various types of battles. 
very tight. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like early MMA kind of matches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I knew I was thinking this sounds like MMA is coming up here somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. these were kind of catch all things because some people might be good at one type of fighting. There were multiple mm-hmm. uh, knocking and kicking was one of a number of martial arts in the Carolinas. The other was wrestling. Mm-hmm. So people who knew this martial arts could use them to fight off the slave master, to resist the overseer. And at first people would say, no, nah, that's not possible. But again, it's there in the historical record, in the slave narratives, in the court cases. Like you can't deny that this happened. Right. Even if it, if it doesn't jive with your version of a totalitarian slave society, then change your version, you know, your vision of how you see this because there were Africans and people of African descent that were able to leverage these martial arts to get places of honor and respect from their masters. There were also masters who would raise these people up to be overseers because they knew that everyone else in the community respected them. There were individuals, there were slave masters who raised these individuals to be their personal bodyguards. Um, Reading the slave narratives of one of these enslaved bodyguards is really fascinating because the way, you know, the idea of chattel slavery is that, you know, the African's body was a tool for the master, you know, like a, it was an object, right? But through their practice of the martial arts, these people learned to master their own bodies themselves, turn mm-hmm. it as a weapon against the slave master, which totally undermined the ideology of racial slavery in the Americas. Mm. And so when I read this slave narrative by one of these enslaved bodyguards, if you will, it's funny because he talks about how he would pick up his master like a sack of potatoes and throw it over his shoulder and take him out of a fight because his master was into drinking and gambling. Mm. And I break out among the slave masters and these guys would all go to their poker games with their their guards with, with their bodyguard, their enslaved bodyguard, and their slave's bodyguard. They weren't allowed to kill the other masters, but they were able to do anything short of that to get their master out safely. And so, just listening to the way that he would talk about his master like a sack of potatoes, when it should be the African whose body is objectified in slavery, I think this is a fascinating reversal. And obviously, we can't take this out of proportion. This was a small percentage of people of African descent who are able to master this art and get these kind of advantages mm-hmm. out of the system. And many of these people were able to get their freedom and gain a certain amount of respect yeah. because of it. That's that honor thing. Yeah. And the most important, I think, is the internal self-concept. So Frederick Douglass's autobiography, I think, is really key here because he talks in detail about how he decided that he wasn't going to be a slave anymore. And he decided he was going to physically fight the overseer. And he did. And he wasn't trying to beat up the overseer. He was just trying to prevent the overseer from whipping him. Yeah. And what he did was, number one, he did prevent the overseer from whipping him, number one. But more importantly than that was he describes in detail how he became a man. He was no longer a slave. He wasn't a slave when he escaped and got to the North. In his own words, At that moment that he was able to take control over his own body and fight off the overseer and the overseer could no longer whip him. He said, from that point on, I was already a free man. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what the law said. Me and the overseer both knew that I had earned, he respected me now. Right. 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 So that internal 
self-identification as someone who has a master of your own life is, I mean, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of that, mm-hmm. especially in the context of racial slavery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that it's not a coincidence that of the African cultural practices that were perpetuated in the Americas, martial arts were ubiquitous. I mean, mm. it'd be hard pressed to find a place in the African diaspora where African martial arts were not one of the cultural traditions that survived, at least into the early 20th century. Mm. And that's not only in the Atlantic diaspora, even in the Indian Ocean diaspora. So there were also Africans who were taken from Eastern Africa, taken to places like Madagascar, yeah. India, mm-hmm. um, Reunion Islands, Seychelles, Seychelles mm-hmm. all that. And you'll note there, Again, one of the things that really defines them is uh, this martial art. They have other martial arts there, clearly related to the ones that end up in the Atlantic world, but they also hold these martial arts. And I don't think it's coincidental because I think that slavery as a system that's ultimately built on violence or the threat of violence is what undergirds it, that obviously Africans would want to have a counterweapon to not only to protect themselves. And obviously, as I mentioned before, the Haitian revolution really begins and is built upon this martial art because mm-hmm. the when the rebels first started their revolution, they were only armed with sticks and machetes. And there were plenty of cases in the history of the war when their mastery of this martial art and their ability to dominate European soldiers using machetes was crucial. Right. And that goes across the board. You know, Another example of that is in Cuba. So in Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, most of the soldiers of the Cuban independence struggle were Afro-Cubans. The officers were certainly initiated people. Um, Mm -hmm. They were Mambis. They were initiated into the African religions. And they were practitioners of these African martial arts. And the machete charge saved the Cubans on a number of key moments in the Cuban wars of independence. So... Mm -hmm. The martial arts covered the internal, the personal, you know, I just can't be whipped. And so I have like my degree of liberty under slavery. You had sure. many people who became free because of their mastery of this martial art. Sure. You had yeah. people, you had communities, maroon communities, people who escaped, you know, self-liberated Africans who set up their own communities in rural areas and use this art to def- these martial arts to defend their communities. Mm-hmm. And you've got entire nations like mm-hmm. Haiti and Cuba, where these African martial arts were crucial for the entire nation to become free. So sure. I don't think it's a coincidence that these African martial arts were perpetuated in the Americas. Right, right, right. So that the idea of the mindset brings me to a mindset hack question. And so what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. Hmm. I'm going to have to be difficult guest and choose two. Okay, um, no problem. <laughs> two are coming out to my mind. The first is to eat the elephant one bite at a time, really to try and take an obstacle and break it down into absur- you know, really achievable goals. Because when you're starting with a new martial art, or which I do, unfortunately, you know, starting, I, I'm learning a new variation of Grima whenever possible. Yeah. Sometimes a few of them at the same time, you can't just take on like, okay, I'm just going to master it. No, you got to say, okay, what's the smallest common denominator? What's the smallest piece? Let me just master this piece. Mm -hmm. And 
This is going to be my focus. And when I master that, then I just go on to the next piece because otherwise it's too easy to get overwhelmed thinking about everything. Like, you know, I've got to learn five arts before I could get to a place where I could get the cartillas from the masters and there's so much and my time was limited. So just slow down, eat the elephant one bite at a time. Okay. That's and, a good one. And the other one is to, this is a Chinese saying, be willing to eat bitter. And that means that, and this is a saying from the Chinese martial arts, be willing to suffer, accept suffer. Mm. Suffering, mm. you know, because I think a lot of people, and I'd like to say in America, but with globalization, some of American bad habits are also being globalized. Yeah. I'm sorry. And there is in our digital age and people become very comfortable mm -hmm. and they basically become allergic to suffering. Mm -hmm. I'll do whatever it takes to avoid suffering or pain or inconvenience. And I think that is a prevalent mindset. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we learn in the martial arts is you have to be able to suffer to get where you want to go. Exactly. So suffering with an objective mm -hmm. won't, doesn't lead to despair. Suffering right. when you don't have a goal, suffering when you don't have somewhere you're trying to achieve, that's suffering that can lead to despair. And I yeah. totally understand that. I'm not, yeah. there's real despair in the world and I'm not talking about that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that I always want to remind myself to be willing to go through the hard times in order to get to where I, because there's no way I would have gotten to accomplish the, any of these research projects if I wanted to stay comfortable. Yeah. Literally, I've been there's there's some rough initiations in some of these martial arts. Yeah. I've been hit by sticks. I've been, you know, all this stuff. But as yeah. long as you keep in mind that it's for a goal. Yeah. I'm willing. It's helpful for me to remind myself it's a noble thing to be willing to suffer for something greater. Mm -hmm. It's really the yeah. idea of polarities, right? Because then that's human nature. Like there's always, there's the dark, there's the light, there's the, the pain, and then there's the, the pleasure. So to your point, yeah, I get it. Yeah, so sorry for choosing two because my both of those are important and they happen at the same time. Right, mindset hacks are great for just inspiring our listeners to think differently. So I appreciate both. Those are wonderful. So we're getting to the end of our conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. My pleasure. But before we move on, we want to know a little bit more about you, who TJ is, who's not the martial artist and not the, the researcher or the lecturer. So I asked this question, are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? Wow. You asked some tough ones. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm the worst guest ever because I'm one of those people. I, I don't accept the options. I, okay. I, I no, please. You tell us I, who you, tell us what you yeah, want to yeah. tell so I, You want to leave some gems for yes, our. I am somebody who doesn't believe in Hegelian dialectic. I don't believe in putting myself or other people in these categories. Right. Okay. You know, okay. so I'm both a reader uh -huh. and a watcher. Okay. So what are some of your favorite reads and watches lately? Okay. All right. So first of all, when I say I'm a watcher, it's actually not, I don't watch Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not on social media. I don't have Facebook. I'm a Luddite in that sense. I don't have none of that stuff because I just, quite frankly, it doesn't serve my ultimate end. Yes. Right. And um, I'm not knocking anybody. I've got plenty of people. I know plenty of people who it's mm -hmm. very good for their business and for the dream that they're trying to do. But for me, it's a distraction. So I'm, I don't watch TV. I don't own a TV, haven't owned a TV in decades. 
but I'm a visual learner. That's why I say I'm a look because I'm a visual learner. Ah, okay. That's really what I do when I'm studying a martial art. I really, the way my mind works, I like to watch people doing things and then imitate and that's get uh, transfer something of these elders into my own body, which is a little bit younger than theirs and just trying to translate. So that's what I, I do a lot of that, especially when I'm in Colombia. I'm a nerd. So as I mentioned before, I grew up in the library. I love to read. Let's see what I'm reading now. Well, the book I'm reading now is an old book that I read first when I was in undergrad. It is called The Way of the Pilgrim. Okay. It is the, the spiritual pilgrim. journey of a Russian peasant who he has um, physical handicap, so he can't work. And he becomes a wandering beggar. But he comes across, he, he goes on a quest to learn how to pray continuously. And he mm. goes through, travels around Russia, and eventually he finds a monk who teaches him the way of what's called the Jesus prayer, which is kind of like this short prayer that is prayed over and over. And it becomes linked first with the breath, and then it mm. ultimately become linked with your heartbeat. So that the mm. prayer, after years and years, the prayer in a sense, praise itself. Mm -hmm. Because the physical. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's my favorite book. It's the book that I've reread most times in my life. Mm -hmm. I love the spiritual tradition of it. I love just, you know, it's always a reminder because he lives a very simple beggar's lifestyle, yeah. um, wandering. And again, I, as I mentioned, I think you see the themes of, of wandering. And so it's a reminder. Again, it's a good reminder to what's important because we're so, again, in this modern digital age, we're, we're so comfortable and media tells us to be somebody, you've got to buy this, get this product. And they're always pushing things and things. And then we end up with too much stuff, you know, and yeah. we, we become slaves to things. And so this book reminds me constantly of, hey, we're pilgrims in this life. We're not taking any of this stuff with us. So don't get attached. Don't attach. Don't get too much baggage. And I just love the spiritual beauty of it. It's one of those books that takes me to that mountaintop. You know, when you have those experiences in your life, when you can see your life clearly and you're like, oh, I just see it all clearly like that mountaintop mm -hmm. and you can look down. Mm -hmm. This book always brings that back. What's important in my life? How I can see my life in the proper perspective. Yeah. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this book, and then if I finally finish this book on the history of Afro-Colombian martial arts, I may write a, another book on this spiritual practice. Because one thing that almost nobody knows, again, I'm into this weird knowledge, is that spiritual tradition is African. Ah, yes, yes. This practice of prayer comes out of the deserts of Egypt. Yes. And people don't know that because in America, yes. they think mm -hmm. of it as a Greek thing because it's usually the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox that have, are the bearers of this tradition to most Western Christians, let's just say. And nobody talks about the fact that this mm -hmm. is Africa. Our first documentation of this prayer mm -hmm. and its practice and the whole spirituality of it comes out of Africa. But, you know, again, with the colonial mm -hmm. mindset, people are so, we have this thought of Christianity as European, subconsciously, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because we're thinking mm -hmm. about, well, you know, how Christianity came during the time of the Atlantic world. But actually, yeah. Africans were Christians long before Europeans, and this practice is very ancient. This goes back to third, fourth century Africa, but nobody talks about it as an African practice, and maybe 
I'll at least write a paper about it if I don't have enough to write a book, but I think it's- We'll keep our eyes open for that one. (laughs) We love all the nuggets of knowledge that you've shared, shared, shared with us. Yeah, and I apologize if I went off the nerdy. No, no, we love love the intellect. We love the insights. Thank you so much for being with us from your desert. I'm not your desert, you're um, your forest retreat. (laughs) And so do you have any last words for our listeners today? Stay positive. I don't know what else to say, you know, just keep keep the long term in mind. We're just journeyers. This is not our final destination. We can't take this stuff with us and really just love people first, man, because we've all been hurt by this pandemic Mm -hmm. and part of it has been out of our control. Like some of it is biological, but Mm -hmm. I think there's also been some really ugly things that we've done to each other. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when I think of, you know, I was in New York during 9-11 And I think about how that horrible event brought New Yorkers together in a way that I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this new crisis, I just see it polarizing people and people getting real tribal and real bigoted about people because of their approach to it. And I say, let's let that go. Let's keep the end in mind. Yeah. Doesn't matter what side you fall on or whatever. Just love people first. That's it. Yeah, I love it. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're a great host. Thank you. Thank you. So listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at www.localcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcast. That's either on podcast apps or on streaming platforms. You can find us. So until next time, and before next time, share, like, subscribe. It helps people find the podcast. And until next time, bye for now.